Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and today we'll be talking about innovation and design thinking, defining what exactly design thinking is, looking at how companies are using design thinking to build happier, more productive teams, and some design thinking tools that individuals and teams can use to apply design thinking to their everyday work lives. Here with us to discuss those topics today is Dr. Leticia Britos Cavagnaro. She's the Deputy Director at Epicenter, the National Center for Engineering Pathways to Innovation at Stanford University. Dr. Cavagnaro is a lecturer at Stanford's Hasso Plotner Institute of Design, commonly known as the D School, where she teaches university students of all disciplines how to build their creative confidence to become engines of innovation in their own lives and as members of teams and organizations. Having witnessed the journey of Stanford students who are transformed by their experience at the D School, bringing design thinking to more people beyond Stanford has become a top priority for Dr. Britos Cavagnaro. She has worked with hundreds of teachers and students of all ages, as well as corporate and nonprofit leaders in the U.S. and abroad. Last summer, Leticia engaged thousands of people from over 130 countries, including me, in an experiential MOOC that gave attendees an introduction to design thinking and how to apply it to innovate more effectively. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Britos Cavagnaro. Thank you so much, Will. Great to be here. Of course. So thanks. Thanks again. Uh, so let's start things off with the, the overall concept of design thinking. It's one that seems to have taken the world by storm of late. For listeners out there who may not be familiar with it, what is design thinking? Sure. So design thinking is an approach for defining and solving problems that starts with really developing empathy for the people who have a stake in the problem you're trying to define. In other words, putting yourself in their shoes and understand their needs and motivations. Um, other important aspect of design thinking is the need to bring creativity into play when we solve problems. When, when we're trained in school, we're trained in very good in analysis, in um, convergent thinking, but we need to, in order to come up with innovative solutions, we also need to be able to envision what could be solutions that do not exist. So we need to also be able to do conver uh, divergent thinking. So th that's, um, that's pretty much a, a definition of design thinking. Okay, great. So putting yourself in other people's shoes to understand the world through their lens, basically. Exactly, yes. And be able to bring creativity to the, to the picture, right? So be able to envision uh, a multitude of possible solutions. So uh, another way to explain this is to contrast it with a more traditional form of problem solving, the one that probably most people is uh, accustomed with and what we have been uh, learning in school. So basically we're given a problem and then we come up with one solution um, and then we go and implement that solution, right? So, and, and in the implementation, we are putting a lot of effort and work and, and emotional investment in that solution. Um, what happens there is that oftentimes when we bring that solution out into the world, that is not the right solution that solves uh, a meaningful problem or solves someone's needs. So that, that is going to be a failure. Uh, what design thinking proposes is that you need to start first by really exploring the problem. There's an interesting quote by Einstein who said, if I had to solve a problem and my life depended on it, I would spend, and, and I just had an hour, I would spend the first 55 minutes in thinking about the problem. 
right? So it's really important to think, what is the frame of the problem? Are we solving the right problem? How does this problem look like from the perspective of multiple stakeholders who are involved, right? Then you need to come up once you know the, the right frame or the problem, the frame of the problem that you want to uh, attack and tackle, you want to create, uh, develop multiple solutions, think of multiple solutions. Then when, when you can select some of those solutions, more than one hopefully, and move them forward, but in an iterative and experimental way by prototyping, by really ex um, trying out, seeing if, if those solutions solve the need that you set out to, to solve, even before you put a lot of work and effort in developing the solution in its final form. Okay. So, um, is is that does that is that clear as a yeah as, absolutely um, that's yeah. great. Okay, and, great. And, and you mentioned prototyping. Are, are these digital prototypes, physical prototypes? Can be both. Yeah, uh, prototyping can take many forms. Basically, prototyping, if you will, is an extension of your ideation process. It's really when you come up with ideas. Oftentimes, you start with something that is very abstract, you haven't figured out the details, right? So prototyping is a way to making those ideas and, and more importantly, the core assumptions of those ideas. So what is within your big idea, what is the one thing, your one assumption that needs to be true for your idea to succeed? And you need to try that. And you need to try that through the lens of the people who are going to use that product or that service. So it depends on what it is. But really, the important thing is that you focus on the experience of the stakeholders and the users. So it can be a prototype can be an experience. You can do it through role playing. You can, the important thing is that you make the idea tangible very early on and test it with real people and with stakeholders. Okay, got it. That makes sense. So you mentioned experience, and one of the things that I want to ask about one of the, is one of the things that really left an impression on me from the design thinking course that you taught last mm -hmm. summer. And it was about the importance of physical environment on a team's performance. Why is our mm -hmm. physical environment so important to fostering a culture of high performance? Yeah, sure. It's, it's, I think it's one of the elements that is the um, most looked over and uh, actually it's really, really important. Um, there's a quote that I like, and I, I, I forgive me, I can't remember who said it, but space is the body language of the organization. I can, I can actually tell you where I read it, but I don't know exactly <laughs> who said it. Uh, space is the body language of the organization. And think about it. Once you get into a church or a gym or a classroom, you immediately feel different in those places, right? There's something in that environment that tells you what happens there, what that place is about, right? Uh, so the same way we need to think of the, the workspaces or the spaces where we learn, what is in those spaces, what, what messages are being communicated to the people using those spaces, right? So some concrete examples. When you want, for instance, to have a group collaborating and actively sharing ideas, for instance, and you have them sitting in a conference room, in a you know, long table, big table that separates them, that puts like a space between people, and actually, and, and chairs are very comfortable, so they're sitting there. People are just going to sit there, and there's not going to be a lot of action. There's not going to be a lot of, you know, taking the lead and standing up and going to the board and, pu and putting an, an idea out there, right? So uh, on the flip side, if you have uh, high tables and, and high seating and people are kind of like almost standing, the activation energy to stand up and contribute something, and for instance, if you're brainstorming and you have a board and you're contributing ideas, is going to be 
much less. So we need to think about these things. Another example is, for instance, the visibility of work, right? So oftentimes people are working on projects and all the work and the, the deliverables and the things along the way, the prototypes, the ideas are in someone's computers or in many people's computers, right? But it's really important to have those ideas and those questions and, and the, all the insights from the project be very visible to everyone in, the, in working on the project. So if you have a room that it's a project room, so the focus of the room is the project as opposed to the, the space belonging to people, then you can saturate that space with what you're learning in your uh, solving that, that project, you're working in that project. And that is going to make everyone working the project smarter because there's a shared knowledge and shared insights. So those are two examples of how the space uh, really influences uh, behavior. So, so breaking rooms into product team rooms is maybe a more effective way of situating people than a traditional office floor plan where you have designers with designers, developers with developers, mm -hmm. business people with business people, finance with finance. So that, that setup can actually be counterproductive? Uh, sure, but um, I want to say that it's not an either-or, right? So there's a lot of, uh, lately, there's a lot of controversy about open space office, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this idea, and um, a lot of the positions that you hear is that it's either-or, right? You either have an open space or, or you don't. And it's really what you really need to think about is, well, perhaps you need to have a certain space that is open and allows for cross-pollination across different functions or different disciplines, as you mentioned, um, you know, designers, business people, and but also you need to, to create spaces for heads down work, focus work. So you need to con contemplate both, right? So if you go to one extreme or the other, it's not good. You really need to think about uh, providing for different needs. Sure, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so question for you, I'm sure you have some real world examples of companies that are using design thinking to move their products or services forward. Are there any anecdotes you can share for listeners of companies that are doing very forward-thinking things as a result of employing design thinking in some form or fashion? Sure. So I'll, I'll share two examples that I uh, have uh, first-hand knowledge of, but there's many companies that fortunately are embracing this, this process and having great results. So one example is Citrix. So Citrix is a multinational software company, and they have really embraced design thinking. And for instance, one, one of the projects that I recently heard for, about uh, was the redesigning the new hire experience, right? So people who come on, bo on board, right? And they had the, in the, the, this project was about re-envisioning that experience. What, what is it like to get on board in the company and, you know, and, and really uh, have that experience, improve that experience? And, and this points to an interesting aspect or interesting in, insight Everyone, if you think in a, in a company, you might think, well, can you apply the process to innovate in terms of the products or services you provide, be, be profit or not profit? But really, you need to think about the culture of the company and also that everyone in the company has a customer, right? So even the people in finance or people who have no contact with uh, outside customers, they have a customer. The customer might be the, the employees of the company, right? So if you create a culture where everyone is really thinking empathically and, and thinking, what is the perspective? How can I do better to, um, to serve my clients, my customers, even if those are internal? That is, goes a long way 
towards creating a culture that fosters innovation. Another example is Google. So, um, and I'm actually uh, looking from my, my vantage point here at Stanford, I'm looking at, at the first server of Google, and it's uh, an old computer tower, uh, and it's decorated with Legos, right? And I think that, and this is from the past, but I'll, I'll give you an example from the, from the present as well, but you know, Google and that server, that old server, represents the challenge in the status quo, right? We often, if, we, if you think about it, Google started as a search engine when there were other search engines out there, right? So they could have said, well, that's, that's done. There's you know, lots of people doing this. Some of the younger listeners might not remember, but you know, Alta Vista and other, other search engines. But they really said, what if we did things differently? How can we do? And so they really questioned the status quo and, and asked a question that led them to the successful company that they are today. One example, what present example is, and it's also related to the use of space, is the creation of the Google Garage. So in the Mountain View headquarters, there's a space that is open to everyone in the company, be it if you're in finance or tech support or human resources, you can go there to collaborate with others. And there's 3D printers and laser cutters, and, and you can create stuff and build stuff. There's prototyping materials, and there's also facilitators that will help you if you want to incorporate design thinking in, in your project. So that's an example of trying to transform uh, the culture of the company using space as, as a tool. Sure. And and so you mentioned prototyping earlier. What are some of the typical mm-hmm. what are some of the typical tools that someone who is quote unquote practicing design thinking might use? Uh, sure. So um, there are uh, some uh, important tools, and more than tools, I would say it's skills or mindsets that we need to develop and practice. And those have to do with the empathy part of design thinking, of really understanding the problem and understanding the perspective of those who are involved. Uh, so, for instance, uh, observation. Oftentimes, we go around uh, about life, and uh, we are, we just stop uh, noticing things. There's many things that do not work as they should, and we just find a workaround and, and we move on. And we missed opportunities, opportunities to create innovative solutions and services that others could benefit from. So really honing our observation skills, stopping and thinking about and challenging the status quo. Also, talking to people, talking to those stakeholders who are uh, relevant in the problem and, and, and figuring out what is, does this problem look like from different perspectives. And so in that sense, we use interviewing techniques that come from the world of social sciences and specifically ethnography. So these are interviews that really want to get at figuring out what are people's needs and motivations. So it's really more of a conversation if you think about it. You really want to ask a lot of why questions and get to the real motivations. And I'd like to contrast that with other tools that are used in the business world, for instance, uh, focus groups or surveys. Specifically, we talk about Surveys, surveys are really good at confirming some hypothesis that you have and giving you additional information, but they're not really good at discovering insights that are going to lead to innovation uh, because you're not going to be able to ask those follow-up questions in real time and understand, also read the body language of the person you're talking to 
I can mention, for instance, there's an example that probably people in the innovation world uh, is familiar with is the, the Keep the Change program that was developed by IDEO for Bank of America. And in that case, uh, after a lot of observations and engaging with different uh, people, the the uh, uh, designers discovered that the the story of this woman who was saving all all her change. So every time that she would buy something and get, you know, a quarter bag, she would put it in a Ziploc bag in her purse. And then when she gets home, she would transfer it to a jar, and then that jar would go into the bank, and that would be savings for her college fund for their, her kids, right? Mm-hmm. And so they say, well. What if we had a service where, you know, you sign up and then every time you do a purchase with your debit card, if the purchase is four seventy five, then you get that quarter gets transferred from your checking account to your savings account. And that was an extremely successful program that was based on that observation of one person doing something, having a behavior that was telling about a motivation and a real need to save. And, and that is really saving is more more than just the rational part of it, but it has to do with also having the motivation to do it. So uh, this kind of like forced savings uh, was very, was very, um, saw the real need. So that that's an example. Okay, great. And so, so what are other than happier workforces and possibly uncovering new products and services, which are very tangible benefits in their own right, what are some other tangible benefits of implementing design thinking in an organization? Well, I'd say, you know, I cannot emphasize enough that actually it's not that you're going to come up with an, a novel product or service. Mm-hmm. It's that you're going to come up with a novel product or service that solves a real need. So actually it's going to be wanted. So you're going to create something that people are going to want if you did your 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 work and discovered the real needs and motivations. So on the um, um, uh, in addition, uh, you are going to save a lot of resources in not pursuing ideas that do not work, that do not solve real needs for longer than you need to. So if you're really... Uh, using low-resolution prototyping, you're going to discard some ideas early on before you invest a lot of resources. So you're going to save uh, money and resources, but also you're going to create products and services that, that solve real needs and, and, and big problems. So that I think that's uh, a great contribution. Okay. And one thing that we talked about in, uh, in kind of the run-up to this podcast was the concept of uh, allowing people to move at the speed of thought when they're using design thinking. Can you talk a little bit about that concept and what exactly it means? Yeah, and and the the reference was uh, more exactly uh, using materials mm-hmm. that move at the speed of thought. And what I meant by that is that when you do low-resolution prototyping, you should start with using resources that really you can modify and use without a, any uh, need for specialized equipment. So, you know, thinking of something that is 3D printed is probably already too high of a resolution to be a, an initial prototype. So you want to really start with materials. And, and you can prototype without materials if you want. You can do a role play and that be a prototype. But uh, really start uh, uh, without investing a lot of resources because what happens when you invest lots of resources in an idea 
And it's not only monetary resources, uh, it's also emotional resources, right? You invest in your ideas, then it's, it's very hard to let it go, even in the face of evidence that shows that, that, is, that you shouldn't pursue that idea because it doesn't have legs. So you actually cannot let go. So that's the important thing is that do not get attached to your ideas and to your prototypes. You are not your ideas. You, you can have many ideas. So you should really be always having that, um, again, empathy lens of, is this idea solving a real need for the people that I'm designing, who I'm designing for? And if not, just move on and come up with another idea. You can have multiple ideas, but we often associate ourselves, our egos, with our ideas so we cannot let go. And so you, you work with, with college students often, and I'm sure they retain that, or they still have kind of that sense of childlike wonder, so maybe it's not as powerful for them, but I imagine in the corporate working world where people spend, you know, for the most part, their days in front of computers, this can be a very powerful tool to get them outside of their own, you know, comfort zones or, or typical ways of thinking. Sure, yeah, it's, it's really like having that empathic lens and, and seeing the perspective of others is really important and really not marrying your ego with your ideas. But I would say that even students in higher education and even in K-12, it's true, they're closer to that childlike state where, you know, they were experimenters and they were learners and they weren't afraid to look silly, right? But still, school actually has done, a, uh, unfortunately, uh, a good job of getting the curiosity out of, of students and getting that sense of ownership and of purpose in pursuing uh, learning, right? So you get lots of students, especially in schools where they have been very successful at getting the, the right grades, mm -hmm. but it's been because they've been successful at the game that school asks them to play, which is the teacher has an answer in their minds and your job is to guess that answer, right? So all the interesting learning experiences that come with tackling a problem that you're really passionate about really defining the problem that you want to tackle as opposed to being given a problem, that is something that we deprive our kids from, uh, of. And then when they get even to higher ed, they, we need to actually get them back to thinking, well, you have to have ownership of the problem. What are the problems that you want to tackle? What is the impact that you want to make in the world? So we recently at a, an event here at Stanford in, in reimagining the, the future of Stanford, there was a question posed, a uh, provocation. What if students, instead of declaring majors, they declared missions, right? And education was built around those that, that impact that they want to make, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful idea that I'd like to, to see happen. So let, let's talk about education for a sec, because as I mentioned in the intro, uh, I, along with thousands of others, was part of a, of a MOOC that you, uh, that you taught last year on Novo Ed. Uh, so as someone who I assume is used to the inside of the classroom, was it strange for you to teach a class that was, that was pretty much strictly conducted online? I mean, there were Google Hangouts, so there was some interaction, but, but there was no physical meeting place. Sure. Uh, I wouldn't say it was strange. Uh, it was certainly different, right? But I put a lot of thought into it, uh, leading to it, um, and it was a great learning experience for me as well. Um, I have to say that I design uh, learning experiences. That's how I see myself. I'm a designer of learning experiences. And space, be it physical or, or, or virtual, 
is just one element that influences that experience, right? So I think when we think about online learning, what's really important is to start with the outcomes that we want. What is the vision? What do we want to achieve? What do we want students to get out of the experience? And then uh, work backwards in creating an experience that using the affordances of technology are, are going to is going to allow us to reach those goals. So in, in the case of the design thinking MOOC that you mentioned, my goals were to have students learn the skills and mindsets of design thinking through doing, through experience, and learn with and from others. So be uh, really emphasize the, the community learning aspect and like a, a learning community aspect. So I designed, I, I used the metaphor of uh, choose your own adventure because I also wanted another goal was to um, have the students create their own learning path instead of everyone having the exact same experience. How can I create something where I allow students to move and use those resources as they need them and as they, and when they're relevant uh, for what they, uh, where are, they are in the process? Um, make sense? Yes, definitely. And and are there will there, will there be repeat performances, or do you have any any plans for uh, design thinking courses of the same ilk online anytime soon? Sure. So actually, I'm currently working on uh, creating a second version of Design Thinking Action Lab, and I'm going to uh, focus that uh, version in on the engineering grand challenges. So um, a few years back in 2008, uh, the National Academy of Engineering created a committee of, of big thinkers and they came up with 14 grand challenges that need engineering solutions. And I'd, I'd like to create a design thinking MOOC that addresses the human scale and the human face of those engineering grand challenges. Some of those are to provide access to clean water to everyone in the world or to advance personalized learning or engineer the tools of scientific discovery, right? I think we need to, when we tackle those big problems, which is one of the goals of design thinking, is to really empower people to identify big problems and go after them, right? And, but we need to see not only the technology side of the, of the solutions, but also the human side, right? If we create a technology, a new technology, how are people going to adopt it? How is that technology relevant in their context? So um, I'm, I'm actually just working on creating that, that new version. And um, as it was the case for the first time, I'm going to involve students in the process. So uh, my center, the, the epicenter, the, our goal is to contribute to the, uh, a revolution in the training of engineers. And we really see that engineering students cannot graduate only with the technical um, excellence to solve the technology side of, of problems. They need to be able to be empathetic problem de definers. They need to be creative. And so I want to create a tool, create a, an online a course or resource that helps the students towards that goal. Nice. So using design thinking to solve some of the world's biggest problems. Yes, that's what design thinking is, is for, among other things. But yes, I think that's the biggest contribution that design thinking can have. Very nice. Any parting words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience that they might be able to take with them as they may look to use design thinking in their everyday lives? 
Sure. Um, so uh, a few kind of like things that people can try and then a few resources for people to look at. Um, so one is um, there's easy ways to start being, we can all be design thinkers. We can all be creative problem solvers. And one is, and I mentioned this before, when you go about your life, stop and look around with fresh eyes. Try to look at things you've looked at every day and ask, what if this was different? What, is, what if this solution didn't exist? Uh, is there, can I think of other solutions? So really think with fre look with fresh eyes at the world around you and challenge the status quo. Another advice is to really challenge assumptions and put yourself in the shoes of others. So oftentimes we have this knowing stance. We know a lot of things. What if you adopted a learning stance and challenge your assumptions about that your view of the world is the same as everyone else's and try to find out how others look at problems and solutions? The third thing is to experiment with yourself. So you are an expert on yourself. So experiment and find the conditions that bring out your creativity. It can be the space. How can you modify your workspace, your home space? It can be the time of the day when you do work. It can be um, the contact that you have with specific people. So find those people who stimulate you, who bring your energy up, and, and seek them out. So you, can, you have to really work at creating solutions that bring out your creativity. But, and, and it takes work, and it, it takes thought, but you, it's, it's really important that everyone does it. Um, the last thing I wanted to, to mention is for those who are interested in um, the space aspect and how to design space that promotes innovation, I recommend the book called Make Space by Scott Dorley and Scott Widow. Uh, you can find it online. It's an excellent book that has really great insights on how the, the D-School space was designed to promote certain behaviors for innovation. And the last thing I just really wanted to say is I want to invite everyone to visit uh, the website of the Epicenter, epicenter.stanford.edu. And if you know any student in higher education specifically or, or particularly in engineering ed, uh, a student, please invite them to look at the University Innovation Fellows Program. This is a phenomenal program that trains engineering students and students in other disciplines to be leaders and co-creators of their uh, learning and creating more opportunities for other students and in their campus to be uh, to learn to be innovative and entrepreneurial. So this is a wonderful way to contribute to this revolution in higher education that we are seeing right now, where there's a, a great interest to bring innovation as part of the the um, education of our our future uh, leaders and our future citizens. Okay, great. So. Look for the book Make Space, and if you're in higher education, take a look at the epicenter.stanford.edu website. Uh, Dr. Britos Cavagnaro, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, great thoughts on design thinking, and uh, we appreciate everything. Thank you, Will. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Of course. All right, so once again, that was Dr. Leticia Britos Cavagnaro, Deputy Director of the Epicenter, National Center for Engineering Pathways to Innovation at Stanford University. You can find her on Twitter at, at Leticia Britos C, that's at L E T I C I A B R I T O S C. Epicenter's home on the web, as we mentioned, is epicenter.stanford.edu. 
And their Twitter handle, if you'd like to find them there, is at EpicenterUSA. Thanks again to Dr. Britos Cavagnato for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Tom Agin, managing partner and co-founder of Rivia on the podcast, to talk about common roadblocks to innovation and how to overcome them. Why looking in the rearview mirror is more important to innovating successfully than being able to see the future, getting beyond the age bias, and why less is sometimes more when it comes to innovation in the business world. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.